This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. All I have for you is a word. Tenet. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. This week, Josh, we used the word tenet to open a movie theater door for the first time since March. Was it the right door? I will let you know when I get my test results. Tenet, the much-delayed, much-hyped new film from Christopher Nolan, opens wide this weekend. We've got a review. We've also seen the new film from Charlie Kaufman, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. That hits Netflix this weekend. And we've got some thoughts. (laughs) Mine will all be expressed in the form of an internal monologue. Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, not sure how that will play on radio, but we will have that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. We're going to start this week, Josh, with some somber news. We were kind of on a high, I think, collectively this past Friday night. We had just gotten through our first ever trivia spotting with about 50 Film Spotting listeners. You, myself, Sam Van Halgren, our producer, even Michael Phillips, the esteemed Michael Phillips, joined us. And it went just about as perfectly as it could go. All had a great time. And almost as soon as we got off, we learned the news about the passing of Chadwick Boseman, his four-year battle with colon cancer coming to an end, dying at the age of 43. Yeah, I think that news broke right as we were doing trivia spotting. And and I mean, it, it's still hard to believe this is actually, this happened. Yeah, it truly is. He started his career in TV, working steadily between 2003 and 2011. And then, of course, the movies 42 was his breakout, playing Jackie Robinson, James Brown and Get On Up. And then, of course, in 2016 came Captain America Civil War in 2016, where we were introduced to him as T'Challa, Black Panther, of course, followed that in 2018. And we just recently saw him in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods that came out on Netflix earlier this year. He does have one completed film project. The release date is unknown at this point. That's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom based on the play by August Wilson. So we have that to look forward to. But Sam, in the Film Spotting newsletter this week, used the exact phrase that I had in mind when I heard this news and was reflecting on the performances of Chadwick Boseman's I've seen, which is, I feel like we all probably did 
take him for granted as an actor, just how good he was. Even looking back at my notes from Black Panther, we spent a lot of our review praising Michael B. Jordan Mm -hmm. as Killmonger. And that's easy to do when you have kind of superhero movies and the villains sometimes get the meatier roles or the showier roles. But man, Bozeman was a true talent. And that really became clear to me this past weekend, Josh, when I caught up with Get On Up, that James Brown biopic from 2014, which is a biopic. And even though they do try to have some fun with it, do some inventive things in terms of jumping around in time and hitting different key points in James Brown's career. It's definitely not a conventional biopic, but does still fall prey to some of the issues that I know you and I have with biopics. Bozeman definitely is never an issue in that film and always grounds it in such dignity and such humanity. You know, to Sam's point about taking Bozeman for granted a little bit, I don't think we spent a ton of time on his performance in The Five Bloods. And granted, it's a, no. it's a supporting performance. It's a secondary role. But in a way, thinking about it now, I, I do think it's really representative of the type of actor he was. He played Storm and Norman there, the Vietnam squad leader who didn't make it out alive, but he does live on in the main character's memories. And he's another symbolic figure. Right. Uh, A larger than life figure like these real life figures he played here. He's kind of, you know, symbolic of the hopes and dreams the others had when they were young men. And uh, I think, you know, he's symbolic. He was symbolic in a way. But what made him special is he could at once be a symbol and be a living breathing human. He was he was blank enough in a good way to allow history to be written on his face. But he was visceral enough to always be a distinct individual. And you talk about his performance as T'Challa as Black Panther. And yeah, he he maybe was overshadowed by Michael B. Jordan from scene to scene, but he still had the presence to loom over that entire picture. He still mm-hmm. embodied that picture, even though he didn't have the flashier part. So that T'Challa became a symbol that was even bigger than the movie. Um, it, and the same time, he was a son. He was a brother. He was someone you could reach out and touch in that film. So this is really a staggering loss for cinema, and I think especially for for the more diverse cinema that we're, it feels like we're on the cusp of, and to mm-hmm. have this cut out from it um, at this young age is is a huge loss. Yeah, you definitely see it in that James Brown performance where he has all of the charisma and energy and just star power you need to embody someone as influential as James Brown. But at the same time, that charisma alone, that energy alone isn't enough. In the course of that film, you do have to think of him as a flesh and blood human being, not just this all-time great performer. And Bozeman definitely imbued every scene with that sense of dignity, that sense of compassion. And he is someone who will surely be missed on screen and off. That is not what I am talking about. I am not ready to be without you. A man who has not prepared his children for his own death has failed as a father. Have I ever failed you? Never. This week on the show, Josh, 
I'm thinking of ending things. You mean you're us, the show? <laughs> no, no. I mean the new film oh. from Charlie Kaufman. Whew. We're good. We're good. This is a film that's available starting this weekend on Netflix. Kaufman, of course, best known as the writer behind being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Adaptation. Of course, the writer and director of Synecdoche, New York. His new one stars Jesse Buckley, who I loved in last year's Wild Rose, along with Jesse Plemons, Tony Collette, and David Thewlis. Safe to say, this movie gave our brains an even bigger workout than Tenet, Josh? Mm. We'll we'll get into that. Okay. We will get into that later in the show. First, though, it is Tenet, the capper to our months-long Christopher Nolan oeuvre review, the movie that got us back into a theater. Could it possibly live up to that pressure? I gather you have an interest in a certain Russian national. Mike, bring me in. You really want to know? He can communicate with the future. Time travel? No. Inversion? Name it and pull the trigger. You're not shooting the bullet. You're catching it. Oh. Well, I've seen too much. Well, we'll try and keep up. As our recent trivia spotting night suggested, Adam, and my team of film spotting family members can attest, it's very possible that at 46... I'm getting dumber. Other things are breaking down. I found out today at my eye doctor, my reading prescription, yeah, changed once again. So why not my brain? Here's more evidence. The fact that I've got to confess, two days after seeing it, I still have very little idea what was going on in most of Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Let me offer a brief, basic plot synopsis, doing my best to avoid spoilers. John David Washington of Black Klansman stars as the protagonist, an American espionage agent partaking in a covert operation in the movie's opening sequence. Things go awry, and in a startling way, at one point, the protagonist witnesses a bullet seemingly reversing course out of the concrete it had impacted. The protagonist emerges from a coma after that event and is recruited by a shadowy group to investigate the bullet's source. What does he find? Another mind-bending, physics-twisting Nolan premise. Now, Adam, as we saw during our Christopher Nolan oeuvre review, our film-by-film analysis of his career in anticipation of Tenet, one of Nolan's gifts as a filmmaker, especially, I'd say, in the likes of Memento, Inception, and The Prestige, is to be one step ahead of the audience, but not so big of a step that we're not able to follow. I'm afraid with Tenet, I couldn't keep up. That's not a claim that the movie doesn't make sense. Maybe you can explain it to me in some spoiler talk, Adam. If it's beyond me, I'll just admit that I'm dumb. But I do think there is value in also having the movie make sense in the moment, not only after you've digested and analyzed it in depth. I think this could also apply to I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the Charlie Kaufman brain twister we'll talk about later. So my question, Adam, is a simple one. Could you follow what was going on in Tenet? And especially compared to earlier Nolan films, how do you think it struck that balance between challenging the audience and baffling us? (laughs) Well, I'm almost as old as you, keyword there being almost. Yeah. So maybe last six months that really gets you, Adam. (laughs) Really? Maybe I'm getting dumber just as you are, but no, there will be no grand explanations from me. I like your dichotomy here, Josh, and I will say I think it is by far actually his most baffling 
film. And not just because of all the quantum physics, it's also partly due to some of his formal choices, which I'm sure we'll get into. But I'd also classify it as one of his least challenging, at least in the way I want to be challenged and certainly have been challenged by other Nolan films. And for me, it comes back to a line from The Prestige. I know we talked about a lot when we discussed that film as part of the overview. It probably came up when we were doing our awards as well at some point. But that movie, one of my top three Nolan films, there's a line that Alfred Borden has, Christian Bale's character has, that I think is so key to Nolan's work. And it's the secret impresses no one the trick you use it for is everything. So the technique of a script here that folds in on itself in as complex a manner as Tenet does, of a visual approach and choreography that has characters, sometimes intimately, but sometimes on an epic scale, oftentimes on an epic scale, moving forwards while others are moving backwards, it may amaze, but ultimately, I don't think it's impressive. It's what you use it for that matters. Another way to put it, Josh, for me would be how isn't as important as why. And in Nolan's best films, where, of course, time and space are always being upended and manipulated, for me, the why is what thrills and what lingers. I'll go back to the prestige, this notion of total sacrifice, the obliteration of individual identity that true artistry may require. Memento, that backward structure and the mixing of color and black and white sequences, what that reveals about Leonard's psychology and his worldview and about human nature and our capacity for denial and our need for purpose. Dunkirk, those intersecting narratives and timelines express something profound, as we discussed, something profound about this communal experience of war and interstellar explores a really fascinating and surprisingly emotional idea for Nolan, which is love as an actual force, not unlike gravity. So for all the talk about Nolan being a cold filmmaker, all of those examples come back to relationships. They all come back to our humanity. And at the end of Tenet, I'm left asking what lingers, what provokes. And I'm asking rhetorically, <laughs> And I kind of have to because neither of us may really be able to expound in detail without getting into spoiler territory. But there's a certain thrill in talking about grandfather paradoxes and parallel timelines. And Sophie, my Doctor Who obsessed daughter, and I had a really fun chat trying to unpack this movie as we drove home from the theater. And of course, there's a thrill in thinking about the filmmaking, about how Nolan performs the trick. But again, what is it in service of? I'm not here, Josh, a few days later thinking about the protagonist's relationship to Kat, played by Elizabeth Debicki. I'm not thinking about his relationship with Neil, played by Robert Pattinson, nor am I thinking really anything at all about the human experience. There's some stuff we could maybe get into about free will, our desire to determine our own fates. Of course, that stuff is there. But for me, Tenet is what happens when Nolan forgets Borden's wisdom. He's so obsessed with how impressive his secret is that the trick he uses it for is nothing. Yeah, what basically what you're saying is this isn't only a practical matter, this confusion, because you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. At, at their best, Nolan's tricks have thematic or emotional 
resonance. You know, you brought up Memento. Leonard's memory wiping, that's that's all about how we can delude ourselves, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of what you were referencing. Or for me, the dream diving in Inception works as this metaphor for repression. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of meaning in his best films that are also some of his trickiest. And the conceit of Tenet, as far as I could follow it, didn't really have that thematic heft. So the confusion isn't only a practical matter, but it does matter. I I Mm -hmm. do think I want to circle back to the basic confusion because it's just, it's not just a matter of I couldn't follow it because it's very likely there is some deep thematic heft to this movie, but it sounds like if you and I weren't able to dig it out, it's because Mm -hmm. we didn't have the opportunity to do that work in the viewing experience. Now, some other people might have, if they were able to keep up with it, and I'm sure those folks are out there, we'll probably hear from some listeners, um, you know, then maybe they were able to find that thematic heft. Those who sat down and did the work in the days after, I tried to do that as you did, uh, saw it with Debbie and we we sat outside the theater and for a, a while tried to dig our way through it as well. Some people might have gotten to it at that point. I still haven't. Um, but that brings me back to this point that the confusion is an issue. And I do think that the balance is way off on this one. Um, again, Nolan could graph everything out for me. I believe that. And it would probably mm-hmm. make sense. Um, basically tenant can be explained. I don't know if it can be experienced. Um, and for me, the best Nolan films are an experience in the moment. I thought back to remember when we talked about devs and bonus content for film spotting mm-hmm. family members. And I, I brought up this idea of the Garland principle. Alex Garland did devs, but also Annihilation. And this idea could apply to uh, to any sci-fi project that turns on a convoluted premise. It's basically not to make the audience feel as if they should be understanding everything. Go one way or the other. Either explain it all so we've got it and can go with it, or leave us obviously in the place of mystery, where I think uh, more esoteric sci-fi, like Tarkovsky sits. That I'm okay with that. I don't need to understand everything at the end of a film, um, unless the film itself makes me feel like I should be understanding everything. And it was funny mm-hmm. when I tweeted uh, this idea of this Garland principle, uh, Stephen Miller, um, film spotting listener, Stanford computer science PhD, who helped us think our way through devs on that bonus show, he responded and said, is there an associated Nolan principle where the axis is flipped? I even did a little drawing of this principle. He said, to me, he's the master of making films that feel hard to understand, make you feel like you've uncovered some great mystery. Yet he makes absolutely sure the audience can keep up. And as we both said, you know, the best of his films, Memento, Inception for me, are on the I understand everything I need to know side of the axis, Mm -hmm. at least by the movie's end. Um, And so, you know, even when you're confused about the big picture for me in Nolan's films, you at least know what you need to know to appreciate what's happening in the scene at hand. And for this, I'll point to the dream within a dream opening of Inception. Um, As our minds were being blown, as we're confused about the entirety of this world, we knew enough to understand what was happening in that opening and to appreciate the audacity of it. Now let's finally get back to Tenet, where I was always in the middle, feeling like I, I should be understanding more and not feeling free enough that this was supposed to be a mystery. And it's that early, let's just call it the backwards fight scene. Um, So without giving too much away, uh, the protagonist encounters this mysterious figure who 
appears in their grappling to be moving backwards a little mm-hmm. bit. And it's an amazing visual effect. You're, you, we haven't really seen, well, maybe we've seen some of this stuff in the experimental films of Maya Darren. <laughs> we can maybe touch on that. But we haven't really, in a big action film like this, seen this happening on screen. So it's impressive. But I ha- I did not have the tools at hand to exactly know what was happening. I knew the rules of physics that were being broken. I didn't know the rules that were being set, even though we, mm-hmm. the film yeah. had tried to explain them to us. And then because I didn't have that practical stuff, I was not able to start thinking at a deeper level that you're talking about, where mm-hmm. I start to connect, okay, what does this stand in for? What is this a metaphor for? What What is the deeper resonance that these pyrotechnics hold? Because we know Nolan can do that. That is going to linger with me in the days after the theater. And that's what was missing for me from Tenet. Yeah, absolutely. If you never have a grasp of the rules, then there really are no stakes. And that's the problem with these scenes. You are left thinking only about how they did it. You're not thinking about why. You're not thinking about what it really means for the characters or what it means for you as a viewer. You're just caught up in the technique of it. And that's just not enough. And I, too, was thinking about devs a lot as I watched Tenet and considered it. That, for me, as you know, more than you, did strike the right balance of baffling versus challenging. But to go back to your point about maybe there being some real resonance here and some deep ideas that we could really sink our teeth into. Part of the reason we don't have that opportunity, as you said, is because Nolan makes it really, really difficult. He puts up a ton of obstacles that, again, go beyond all the quantum physics of it. The score, it's not Hans Zimmer here, it's Ludwig Göransson, and the music is overused, it's overpowering, It's overwhelming. The sound design overall, I think that applies to. There are probably, Josh, one or two conversation scenes in this movie that didn't have music or some other sound drowning out the dialogue. I don't remember them. That's not my experience Mm -hmm. with this movie at all. For me, the experience was wall to wall. There is then a propulsive energy to the movie, which is a nice way of saying it's really loud. That's due to that music. It's due to the sound design. It's due to all the action. It's due to the screenplay being structured in such a way that you feel like you are always going from one giant set piece to the next. If you like that snow layer sequence in Inception, then mm. then you're going to love, you're going to love Tenet. And I could see all of that and that energy being exhilarating for some viewers, or I could see it being exhausting because exhausting is exactly what it was for me. We almost never get to just exist in a space with these characters and observe behavior. And that's unfortunate when you've got such talented actors who are all capable and all do as much as they can. They're all capable of suggesting an inner life. You see it in Debicki. You see it in John David Washington. You definitely see it in Robert Pattinson, but we never really do ever connect with them as characters or really just as people. And if you had trouble understanding the dialogue, let's say in Dunkirk, or maybe when Tom Hardy is playing Bane in The Dark Knight, it's like Nolan says, okay, I'm going to really put you to the test. How about we put oxygen masks on everybody in most of the action sequences, right? Making it impossible to know what anyone really is saying. And I mentioned the highly capable actors. There are certain moments and beats here and relationships that are suggested or given a little bit of time, but they really can't pull it off because they are constantly battling 
all of the other elements I just mentioned. Yeah, there's always got to be a mask. Someone's got to be wearing a mask in a Nolan movie. So that's required. It's funny, you know, you talk about the sensory overload and I had a similar experience. This is the first film that we've gone to in a theater in months. And part of me does wonder, as much as I think you're (laughs) right, you know, like Goranson, you talk about the composer Ludwig Goranson. He did this beautiful score theme for The Mandalorian, um, the Star Wars spinoff series on Disney Plus that is just gorgeous. And so, and I did appreciate in that opening sequence, which is set in an orchestra hall, how he sort of blends the warming up of the orchestra into the score so that things Mm -hmm. get bleared together and it's just this off-kilter sensibility. But you're also right in that that's before all the hectic intensity kicks in, which really starts maybe a quarter of the way in. I think before that takes off, Adam, what we've got here is maybe not a great Christopher Nolan film, but a pretty darn good Bond film. I mean, this sure. this begins with more than any of his other films, for yeah, sure. With Washington's, you know, protagonist very much um, as a Bond figure. When he begins to investigate this bullet, it involves a number of these meetings, these sit downs with international intrigue types. And I thought yeah. those scenes they were quieter. They allowed for conversation. They gave Washington a chance to show a little bit of personality, which I will argue I want to get to. Kind of is taken away from him later in the film. Um, and there, there's a quiet to it. You know what I liked about those also? Notice everyone he meets, each each major player he meets, they instinctually kind of sniff him out and and kind of claim like there's something off about you. And I do mm-hmm. think there's an implication there that it's because he's black. And, and this is something the movie doesn't play too much with, but you do get that line early on when he's yanked into the back of a kitchen by an arms dealer's goons to have the crap beat out of him. And what does he say when he goes back there to the to the guy who's about to beat him up? I ordered my hot sauce an hour ago. All right. There's there's like a little cultural note hit there that does resonate in an interesting way. And I also think it goes to the fact that he's simply named the protagonist, right? Mm-hmm. Is that maybe a side eye to, you know, mainstream Hollywood's history of relegating black actors to sidekicks? So I think there's an interesting undercurrent that Washington gives to the performance and that some of those scenes have. But those completely fall away when the movie kicks into the ultra gear that you're talking about. And I think the film underserves Washington once those mm-hmm. physics lessons kick in because, you know, we don't learn anything else about the protagonist. We don't learn anything else about him from the performance, but we don't from the screenplay either. He's often reduced to being this passive listener as things are being explained. I think something similar happens to McConaughey in Interstellar um, and the entire emotional weight of the film gets transferred to Debicki as cat that playing this wife mm-hmm. of the arms dealer. I don't think we should mention who plays the arms dealer because the movie seems to want to hold it as a surprise. So let's that set that aside maybe. Um, but the emotional weight of the film really gets transferred to their relationship. And yeah, while and it can't carry it, it can't carry it. Debicki is, you know, Capable. Absolutely. We've seen her be capable in other things. I think she does what she can here. I think there are moments where her steely resolve kind of cracks under the pressure of what her husband is forcing upon her and what the protagonist, as they're working together, expects her to do. But yeah, it's not fair for Nolan to have one character carry this big of a burden. Um, and 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 in, in the process, I think Washington's performance, it's hard to tell, mm-hmm. you know, 
what he's capable of from this film because there yeah. are hints of it early on and then he kind of gets as much screen time as he gets as a character he gets set aside. Yeah. Some interesting thoughts there, of course, about race and how that may factor into how his character is perceived. I watched it with the same eye that you did and wondered if that was what was being implied because it's never, of course, explicitly stated. And for me, I tied it back more to the idea that I think Nolan's trying to get at with the protagonist, which isn't so much a commentary on race or black actors on screen, but what we know Nolan loves to do from a meta perspective, going back all the way to his first film following. And I do want to say, if there are any rewards or challenges associated with this film that I have been thinking about, it ties back to that overview and thinking about this film as the logical progression, as the inevitable evolution of a filmmaker's career when he started with following and Memento. And that first film following has a character who is called the young man, right? He's just given that general name and he's a writer. And here we have a character who's called the protagonist as if he's the the main character in the story, of course, but he is also someone who is essentially authoring this story. And so for me, tying it back to that movie and also tying it back to Memento is interesting just to think about. So follow me here a little bit, Josh, if I can articulate this at all. But With Memento, of course, there aren't really two Leonards. And in the world of Memento, time travel doesn't exist. But it is a story in which one man does effectively exist in two parallel universes. One is moving forward, and one is moving backward, and one is in color, one is in black and white, and they eventually do meet. So to tell that story, Nolan whether it was because of budget constraints or technological constraints or generic constraints, he had to, in the parlance of Tenet, he had to find a mechanism to invert time. And what did he do? He used cinema. He used editing. He used color to impose this time travel element, if you will. Tenet, as I said, then feels like the logical evolution where now Nolan no longer needs to impose the inversion through editing, he can actually invert. He can merge the worlds before our very eyes, visually, sonically. You actually are able to watch characters move backwards and forwards simultaneously, which is something we couldn't do. It was all an editing conceit in Memento and a structural conceit. Here, we actually get to watch it play out on screen. You absolutely understand how this makes sense for Nolan to want to explore. Yeah, it does fit. Uh, it's it's a, mere, a warped mirror image of memento in that way. I think that works Uh, for me. And I think if there's something meaty here, it is connected back to that idea you were talking about in terms of the protagonist. There is a lot of talk in the film about um, who is a protagonist, who is an antagonist. And if the protagonist is actually the hero, for lack of a better term of this story, or just one of many players. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all very interesting. It's meta. Um, I don't think, going back to where we started, I don't know if the groundwork, both the practical narrative and metaphysical groundwork is laid for us to be able to appreciate that, certainly in the moment, or maybe even 
in the aftermath. And I think in the aftermath, it's also, you know, you're going to have to slap it on to some of those scenes to really make it work and make those scenes seem like they had a little more heft to them than maybe in your mm-hmm. first viewing. Um, before before we wrap up, though, I, I just I do want to note, like, there is some amazing imagery in this to your big budget point that, that Nolan is at this point where he can do things like um, just and he's working with Hoyt Van Hoytma again cinematographer of Dunkirk and Interstellar and he could just fill the screen with this massive machinery that he sets against these vast backdrops there's a road heist um, you know that that's among the great ones in the Fast and Furious franchise, uh, kind of before the metaphysics come and kind of screw everything up, when it's just a practical road heist, it's so impressive, involving like five major vehicles. How about that? The image I'll probably remember from Tenet is the sight of waves rolling backwards before these ships rather than breaking before them and spilling mm-hmm. out, right? Um, and this takes place on amidst this endless array of ocean wind turbines. So these are the sort of grand scale images that Nolan and Van Hoytema can can create and concoct um, that I'll remember. But again, to mm-hmm. what end? I, I won't remember the to what end as strongly as I have with other Nolan films. Yeah, and I think even amidst all the spectacle and all the noise, as we've talked about, there's a sequence near the end, a huge sequence that involves large rocks crashing against the ground and crashing against each other. And there's something about those moments that still feel like gigantic movie spectacle, and yet he makes it tactile, which Nolan's mm, always been yes. able to do, right? You you really feel the the true weight of those rocks crashing down. And even then something like the bungee jumping that happens at one point, that stunt feeling very practical, yes. right? And very natural is something that Nolan can pull off. And you mentioned the bond element here, and there is something almost refreshing, if that's the right word, or quaint about this film that is exploring all these huge metaphysical ideas and yet it's rooted in russians and the cold war and something as simple as i don't know josh a nuclear holocaust just bringing the world to an end now it gets more complicated than that but it really does feel like this kind of throwback espionage movie complete with as you said a bond villain who at one key point does end up doing what every Bond villain does, which is talk way too much, right? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so and it's y- it's definitely rooted in that. And yet, I still didn't understand it for all no, he was telling no. me. Oh, and no. on the Bond note, how fun is Pattinson? You know, yeah, he's kind of so good. He was riffing, especially the first scene he shows up where he's a little boozy. He's totally like a young Roger Moore, and and by far gives my favorite performance. Me too. In the film or in the early portion, mm-hmm. especially when it's a little quieter, a little it's a little more character rich, and it's having more fun with those Bond tropes. So yeah, yeah. Pattinson is a highlight. But to your final point, there is a line in the movie, I think it comes pretty early, and it feels like such a blatant wink at the audience that I'm guessing everybody who saw it, critic or otherwise, laughed to themselves, yeah, which was I know where you're going. someone saying, don't try to understand it, feel it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you go, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> I got it. I'm not, I'm not going to try from here on out. I'll just go ahead. I'll go with it the as problem, much as I can. The problem is, without understanding, the movie's difficult to feel. Without well, some understanding. Yeah, I agree completely, but also I think the bottom line is what our friend Matt Singer said in his review, which ultimately was a positive one. He said, I'd like to watch the film again to see what I missed and to find out whether there is more to Tenet beneath its dazzling surface to try to understand it and feel it. And my problem is 
I don't really have that desire. Hmm. I can't say that at the end of the movie, not only am I devoting all of the thought and energy to it that I have with so many other Nolan films, but I'm honestly not eager to dive back in. And that almost never happens with Nolan. Well, no, I mean, I think we found over the overview, which I would not have uh, guessed at all going in between the two of us, you're the Nolan apologist. I mean, I, I don't think either of us came away with film that we actively dislike, um, mm-hmm. but by far you had less issues with his movies than me. So does this put mm-hmm. Tenet at the bottom of your ranking now? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me that. And of course, I didn't bother to go back and look at my letterbox rating. But I think it would have to be because if I'm going by those pesky little things that don't matter at all, star ratings, I don't have a Nolan film that's rated below three out of five stars on Letterboxd. Mm. And right now, I'm at two and a half with a tenant. So yeah, I think it is my least favorite Christopher Nolan film. Yeah, it might land there for me as well. You, you don't want to hear this, but right now it's it's neck and neck with Dark Knight Rises for that last slot. So we'll I'm going to give it a little more thought and we'll see where it comes out. <laughs> we were so in lockstep and then you had to go and ruin it by bringing up our disagreement over the Dark Sorry. Knight Rises. Tenant is out in theaters everywhere if you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts. We would love to hear your disagreements with us on this one email feedback at filmspotting.net the brain cramps continue when we come back with a review of charlie kaufman's i'm thinking of ending things plus results of the film spotting poll asking you to name your favorite performance in a kaufman movie stay with us delusions you didn't time travel and you didn't go to heaven and hell here's a real idea for you be role models to your daughters get real jobs that's from the trailer for bill and ted face the music came to vod last weekend it's the long anticipated long wished for follow-up to 1989's bill and ted's excellent adventure talk about feeling old and 1991's bogus journey stars keanu reeves of course and alex winter as Bill and Ted. Their mission this time around to find the song that will, quote, set their world right and bring harmony in the universe. So it sounds like, Adam, we've never needed Bill and Ted more than we need them now. You saw, face the music. Give me your rating, bogus or excellent. <laughs> Can it be somewhere in between, Josh? No, and maybe no, leaning? Not allowed. Okay. No nuance here. Maybe leaning a little bit more towards the excellent side. Now, you know who did think it was absolutely excellent? My sons, Quinn and Connor, they <laughs> okay. loved it. Now, they are kind of history nerds. Uh-huh. 
So these movies are in their wheelhouse. Are they also, though, about the age you would have been? When that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, that makes sense. I think 10 to 14 is okay. the perfect demographic <laughs> for a Bill and Ted movie. And that's exactly the age I was when mm-hmm. I saw Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So not that it ever comes down to this box office decision, but just us talking here. Can I say Bill and Ted's is really worth the $20 rental fee? I'm not sure, but probably is if you've got kids in that 10 to 14 range who will probably enjoy it as much as mine did. There is Coincidentally, of course, a time traveling element here is we're just coming off a discussion of Tenet. And is this movie a lot less confusing than Tenet? Yes, of course it is, though the stakes would, of the films. I would hope so. The stakes of the films are about the same. I mean, saving mm-hmm. the universe, right? Does it really make any more sense than Tenet? No. Narratively, <laughs> in this movie, anything and everything is possible. There is really no adherence to logic whatsoever. But Damn, Josh, like Bill and Ted themselves, it's just impossible not to like. There is an earnestness and there is a lack of cynicism to it that is genuinely kind of startling. And I do feel like I needed a movie like this right now. Another person who did is a longtime film spotting listener, Ian McFarlane. He reached out over Patreon and asked if we were going to talk about it because he really liked it and thought more people should maybe be aware of it. And I asked him to write in with what he liked about it. And we're definitely in lockstep. He said, I went into it not asking for a lot. This was a sequel to a couple of movies I'd watched over and over again on TV as a kid. And as such, I honestly didn't need more than a warm serving of nostalgia, especially since some gooey refried sentimentality would hit especially well in this egregiously awful year. What I got was definitely more than I expected. It's an honest and surprisingly successful recreation of the lovable, if very cartoonish characters from 30 years ago, while also figuring out where they'd be as middle-aged men who have failed to conquer the world like they'd always assumed they would. The result is a movie that's surprisingly kind and sincere, perhaps not as funny as the other films, but certainly more touching. It's able to recall and revisit aspects of the previous movies without ever feeling like it's trying to recreate it. Instead, it's a slapdash adventure or journey through the series high points from an older, slightly wiser perspective. I think Ian said it very well. There is something a little more touching about this film, I think, than the others, which were going for broader comedy that comes through in the relationships with their daughters who are basically clones of Bill and Ted and those performances by Bridget Lundy Payne as Billy and Samara Weaving as Thea are really good. But it's some supporting players that actually made this the most fun for me, Josh. We get William Sadler as death, a bass playing death. So, of course, I have affection for him as the four string virtuoso that he is. And Anthony Kerrigan, who I love as NoHo Hank in the series Barry on HBO, I mean, just really the standout, most hilarious character in that series shows up here. You can't really tell it's him except in in voice to an extent and his demeanor. But he plays this supposedly evil robot who's sent from the future, who's chasing Bill and Ted. And the movie deliberately sets him up, sets it up as that type of figure we've seen in so many sci-fi movies. And then we realize that He's got a real soft side (laughs) that he's not the he's not the evil robot. Maybe the movie made him out to be. I do think there's a lot of fun that they have with that character. And there are some genuinely funny bits like the one where Bill and Ted go into the future. They see themselves as the rock legends they always thought they'd be complete with mansion and British accents. And my favorite is one where they interrupt a therapy session with their wives even though they've been explicitly told by their future selves that they'll only make it worse if they do that. 
And watching them do exactly that, despite their utter confidence that they won't do it, really is hilarious. And it's one of those things that kind of makes these guys so lovable and so relatable is that we've all kind of been there. Maybe the circumstances are different, but you've been told, you've been warned, don't go do that, don't say that, and you're just sure that you can do it. And of course, whoever warned you was exactly right. And I think that that really is the key to these movies is those performances by Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter and those characters being so relatable and ultimately so lovable. Yeah. So strange in the clips just that I've seen to hear Reeves like much older kind of huskier adult voice using Mm -hmm. that lingo, the Bill and Ted lingo. There's something sort of jarring about that, but also I imagine something refreshing about being reminded that Reeves can work in this comic register. I mean, I think it's something we know if we sit down and think about, but considering that he's done the John Wick films and this is kind of the the phase of his career he's been in in lately, which is obviously much more somber and serious and minimalist. So I imagine it's kind of fun to see him go back in that direction. Yeah, it's a ton of fun. And I'll give credit to Reeves. There is never a sense that as much fun as he is having that it's a lark or that it's a goof, that he is wasting his time with this character. There is clear affection he has for Ted, and that comes through in every moment of this film. So if you go from Bill and Ted Face the Music, where you're sort of luxuriating in this fantasy world where all of your faith in humanity gets to be restored— You can then have it all annihilated under the weight of the reality we are all actually living through. If you watch another film that is just hitting VOD this weekend, it's a documentary called Feels Good Man, and it won the special jury prize for Emerging Filmmaker at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. It is the story, Josh, of the Pepe the Frog meme. Are you familiar with Pepe the Frog? Yeah, very vaguely. Something about being co-opted for hate groups, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's become this symbol of hate. And the director, Arthur Jones, in a clip I saw, described the movie this way, and it really is a perfect summation. What do you do when this ridiculous drawing of a stone frog you drew in your early 20s to entertain your friends years later becomes an icon of hate? That's what this movie is about. It truly is about that. And... I kind of joke in connecting it to Bill and Ted, but I like thinking about Feels Good Man as the documentary version of a Bill and Ted movie where the well-intentioned artists write the song that brings them immense joy and they have hope it will have that same effect on others, unite the world, only to find that song is co-opted and exploited for evil. And then we have to watch them struggle with the impossibility in this internet age to reclaim it. That's the case here with this artist who is named Matt Fury. I didn't know of Matt. I didn't know the origins of Pepe. And you get that full story here presented very thoroughly. It's a very well-researched investigation of how everything came about, but has the humor and the playfulness and creativity that is appropriate for its material and for its main character. You can tell it was made by someone who's a fellow animator and artist in both its spirit and its formal approach. And there's also a clear empathy that Arthur Jones has for Matt and for the subjects he's interviewing. If you want to escape hell, you can't ignore it. You almost have to go to the center of it. Pepe the Frog is an omen because it's not going to go away until we hear the message that it has to say. So how did you pick the name Pepe the Frog? 
it sounded like um, pee-pee. To go pee-pee. This movie, Josh, made me angry. It disturbed me. It made me feel depressed and hopeless about where we're headed as a country, maybe where we're headed as a species. But that's why I do think it's an important movie to see. And it's important that we don't just look away. I think we have to wade into the muck. We have to understand and we have to wrestle with how and why these memes and these messages of hate do spread. Full disclosure, I do know Arthur Jones a little bit. Now, I didn't know this before I got a screening link for the movie and I saw the name and I said, how many Arthur Jones are there probably in the world? It's maybe not a very rare name, but there's probably not a ton of them. And it turns out this is the first time and it may be the only time in film spotting history where I'm talking about a movie directed by someone who I directed (laughs) because back in film school 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, I'm ashamed to say, I had to do my final project film here in Chicago. And my best friend, my roommate from Grinnell, Kevin Rich, was my lead. I needed someone to play the director in my movie, play a director. And he recommended his friend, Arthur Jones. And Arthur was great in this supporting role in my movie. And we haven't been in touch for 20 years until now this movie came out. It's his first film here in his mid forties and it's a really, really good one. And despite any claims of bias, I'm still going to put this movie feels good man up for a golden brick nomination. I think it deserves to be in contention. So basically by casting him as a director, you're, you're claiming the credit for his directorial career. Well, I wasn't going there, but I like where your head is, Josh. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Feels Good Man is currently playing in limited release, and it's available VOD as well. If you want to find out if it's playing in a theater near you, you can check it out at feelsgoodmanfilm.com. Adam, we've got another giveaway, and it's for a movie that I've been looking forward to for quite some time, Antebellum, a new horror film coming to VOD on the 18th, stars Janelle Monet as a successful author who gets trapped in a horrifying reality and has to uncover a mystery before it's too late. Jenna Malone, Kiersey Clemens are also in this. We've got some digital downloads to give away. To sign up for a chance to receive one of those, go to filmspotting.net slash events. All the details will be there. Winners will probably be notified sometime around September 17 or 18. So again, if you're interested in trying to win a digital download of Antebellum, go to filmspotting.net slash events. We mentioned our first ever trivia spotting earlier in the show. We made that event available exclusively to our family members over on Patreon. Do want to thank family member, longtime listener Thomas Todd for being our quiz master, for structuring the whole event, did a fantastic job, and we do plan to do more trivia events in the future. We don't have details to announce just yet, but we'll definitely be setting up some more dates. We also released our August bonus show. All of our Patreon followers get a monthly bonus episode, and it was their vote. We talked about Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop from 1987, so that's available now. And also, if you're a family member, you can participate in our first-ever virtual watch party. It's scheduled for Saturday, September 26. Family members also voted on that, Josh. 1998's Out of Sight, a movie that's in the film spotting pantheon from director Steven Soderbergh, is a movie we are going to watch live with our listeners. 
Can't wait for that. So yeah, in addition to those opportunities as a film spotting family member at Patreon, you also get ad-free episodes that comes via a dedicated RSS feed, early downloads, live pre-sales and discounts and a merch discount. We've also added something new recently. It's an annual membership. So rather than being charged monthly, you can commit, decide to support us for one full year. And if you do that, you'll get a 10% discount. So again, all that good stuff is going on at patreon.com slash film spotting. We also wanted to take a moment to promote our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. They are on hiatus, but their next pairing will be coming next week. And they've got Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things, along with being John Malkovich, as we will probably talk about in a few minutes. That combination definitely makes a lot of sense beyond the obvious Kaufman connection there. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. You can find new episodes of The Next Picture Show every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. We're not going to play Massacre Theater this week, Adam, but we do want to offer a little snippet of last week's fun. Massacre Theater, of course, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. So in case you missed it, here's a bit from last week's Massacre. That was amazing. That's like some David Copperfield sh- That's some kind of wizardry. Sorcery. How'd you do that, bro? Don't freak out. Look at your shoulder. So what are entries looking like for this one, Adam? <laughs> that hat is pretty empty, Josh, mm. at that point. So good chance to win if you did recognize what film that scene was from, despite all of that hard work, Josh, playing like 17 characters yeah. in that scene. It hasn't really paid off yet in terms of entries. Very, very disappointing. Well, there's still time. The deadline for entries is Monday, September 7th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. Again, send your entries to feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week here on Film Spotting, we will return to our 8 from 84 series with Once Upon a Time in America, Sergio Leone's late career gangster epic starring Robert De Niro and James Woods. It was Leone's final film and his final collaboration with composer Ennio Morricone. Morricone, of course, passed away in July at the age of 91. And we talked about devoting a top five to Morricone at the time. We've given ourselves a little bit of time now, Josh, to do some homework, and we will finally get to our favorite Morricone scores next week on the show. Now, there is a looming question, one we've talked about a little bit in our film spotting slack with our producer sam now we will have one of our classic on-air production meetings which version of once upon a time in america are we going to see (laughs) you know i love these because no matter what version we end up with a third of the audience will declare with surety that we picked the wrong one so this is a no-win situation but we are considering well, the theatrical cut we're probably not considering, right? That runs just nope. over two hours. Reportedly, Leone never approved of it. There is a 229-minute cut that was released on home video in the 90s. And then there's a 251-minute director's cut that came out in 2014. Now, if you look on streaming, that doesn't really make things easier because there are some places that offer the 229 version, others the 251 where are you at, Adam? How are you thinking about this? Well, I'm just trying to be practical. I feel pretty comfortable with either the 229 or the 251. The 229 
is the version I own on DVD as sent to me as a gift by a film spotting listener some years ago. So I'm inclined to watch that version. And I think, Josh, where I'm going to leave it is if you've got access to the 229 or the 251 on whatever streaming service you favor, or if you have access to the disc, you know what? Go with either one. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at, too. And there was a good IndieWire article, I think, on the occasion of that uh, extended director's cut in 2014 that made it seem to me like either of those longer versions are the right ones to wrestle with. I usually go to the physical media if I can, just because sometimes quality on streaming can vary. And uh, I, I managed to get my Chicago Public Library card now, Adam, with the move. I'm back in business getting DVDs through the library, and I do have with me that 251 version on DVD. So chances are that's probably where I'm going to go. More information about the 8 from 84 series is available at filmspotting.net slash 8 from 84. And if you do have a favorite Morricone score, we would love to hear that. Feedback at filmspotting.net is where you can send that. Or of course, find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at Larson on film. We have a new film spotting poll question over at our website. And with Once Upon a Time in America coming next week and Chantel Ackerman's three and a half hour Jean Dielman up next in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon, we do have long movies on our minds. The new question then is, what is your favorite movie from the last 10 years that is three hours or longer? And if you're wondering, why are we only picking the last decade? Well, as Sam proved to me, if you go any further back than that, especially if you open it up to all time, as you would imagine things get a little overwhelming. Yeah, I, I saw Sam put together a whole list of some of those titles, and it would have been hard to whittle down to just a couple for a poll. So we're sticking to the last 10 years, over three hours, and here are your options. Avengers Endgame, Blue is the Warmest Color, that is the 2013 film with Lea Seydoux and Adele Exarchopoulos. I think we reviewed that on the show, Adam, if I remember correctly. We're also including Carlos, the Olivier Asias film about the 70s revolutionary. Two Martin Scorsese pictures, the recent The Irishman and then The Wolf of Wall Street. And then we're also throwing in there the Oscar-winning doc O.J. Made in America. Of course, other will be an option too, Adam. Where are you going? It's tough. Because I reviewed favorably every one of those options, and I did love and include O.J. Made in America on my top 10 films of that year, despite the fact that it did roll out as a TV miniseries. It comes down to the Scorsese for me, and unlike you, who only loves one of those films, I love both of them. I can't remember off the top of my head where I have Wolf ranked in relation to Irishman, but I think it's higher. So just to spite you, The Wolf of Wall Street is my pick. <laughs> shocking. Shocking. Well, I would probably go with The Irishman if I had to choose from these options. But I think I'm going to go with other here. And, you know, there just hasn't been enough Nuri Bilga Jalon talk on the show recently. Adam, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, we gave a lot of love to. And then... Winter Sleep, I don't think we even reviewed, but I did manage to see 2014's Winter Sleep. It is over the three-hour mark, and it's a stunner. I mean, both intellectually and just visually with some of those Turkish landscapes that he's known for. So I'm going to go other this time. Winter Sleep is my pick. Winter Sleep, an interesting choice there, a movie I thought we had reviewed on the show, but 
I think you're right, Josh. I look at the archive, I do a quick search, and it doesn't come up. If you want to vote other like Josh did or go with any of those other choices, you can do that now at filmspotting.net. Ross Bratton, a longtime listener who I believe was part of our trivia spotting event last weekend, he says if OJ Made in America counts, then it has to win. It has to win. And so far, maybe a bit of a surprise. It's not one of the Scorsese movies that's in the lead. It's OJ currently, Josh. That is interesting. Yeah, even fighting off Avengers. Nice. If you want, filmspotting.net is where you can find that poll. I meant to ask you, I need a cool way to kill people. <laughs> don't worry for my script. I don't write that kind of stuff. Come on, man, please. You're the genius. Here you go. The killer's a literature professor. He cuts off little chunks from his victims' bodies until they die. He calls himself the deconstructionist. That's kind of good. I like that. See, I was kidding, Donald. Oh, okay. Sorry. You got me. <laughs> Do you mind if I use it, though? Maybe inspired by Nolan here, we're going backwards, and we're going to share our previous poll results. You heard Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Cage in 2002's adaptation, directed by Spike Jones, written by Charlie Kaufman. We will get to our... Review of Kaufman's new I'm Thinking of Ending Things in a bit. But first, the results of our question, what is your favorite performance in a Charlie Kaufman scripted film? We gave you these choices. Malkovich Malkovich in Being John Malkovich, Nicolas Cage as the twin brothers, Charlie and Donald in Adaptation, Kate Winslet as Clementine in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Jim Carrey as Joel in Eternal Sunshine, or Philip Seymour Hoffman's Caden Cotard in Synecdoche, New York. You could, of course write in a candidate and go with other if you chose. Josh, how did it come out? It looks like Sam gave us the right options because other is in last place with only 2% of the vote. John Malkovich got 11%. Kate Winslet, 16%. Philip Seymour Hoffman with 19%. Jim Carrey, 21%. But yeah, up there at the top, fairly easily is Nicolas Cage from Adaptation with 32% of the vote. Timothy G. Stevens says the math here is easy. Nick Cage plays not one but two roles. That's twice as good. Just ask Donald Kaufman. He can tell you. Here's Adam Fromm. It's easy to give the film spotting merit badge to Nicolas Cage for his one-man band rendition of Dueling Neuroses, or possibly Jim Carrey for his surprising and transcendent descent into shimmering normalcy. But seeing as how John Malkovich starts out as a parody of himself, followed by a parody of that parody that's been run through the wash on the John Cusack cycle, followed again by a gentler version of the same parody filtered through an entire collective hive mind with detours through some demonic possession-style groping and whatever the hell that Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich fever dream is, I'm not only choosing him, but also kind of wondering what all those other buttons on the poll are for. <laughs> well said, Adam. Can you just sit in for me on this I'm Thinking of Ending Things review? <laughs> Zach in Chicago says, Nick Cage isn't the only one playing a double role on this list. Kate Winslet has to play actual Clementine in a handful of scenes, and then what we could call Joel's Clementine, a romanticized version within his memory. The differences between the performances are subtle, but they're definitely there. 
Nice. Here's Mitch McGonigal. I want to give a shout out to the only Oscar-winning performance in a Charlie Kaufman movie, Chris Cooper in Adaptation. For an actor who most notably plays villains or cold characters, Cooper brings considerable warmth to the role of John LaRoche. Without the empathy and wide range of emotions that Cooper exhibits, Adaptation's very existence would become nothing but a layered meta-joke. Yeah, and this reminds me, not only do I love Chris Cooper, and I love his performance as John LaRoche in Adaptation, this may be the only award, this film spotting poll, that Meryl Streep has never been nominated for, because we overlooked her completely. That's right. Of course, is Susan Orlean in Adaptation. Derek Wagner says, this may be a bit off the beaten path, but I went with Tom Noonan as everyone else in 2015's Anomalisa. The entire conceit of Anomalisa can only succeed if everyone else has a voice that is perfectly mellow and inconspicuous, and Noonan is simply perfect for the part. His voice is maddening in its lack of remarkableness, and it just gets eerier as the film goes on. Love vocal performances, and yeah, that is an unnerving one. One more comment here. It's from Jody Kujawa. Man, what a tough poll. I don't think there's a weak Charlie Kaufman character. Jim Carrey and Nicolas Cage owe him deeply for creating the foundation of their greatest work. And every single performance in Being John Malkovich shines with the meticulous character crafting and attention to detail of a master puppeteer. But with all that said, I think we are overlooking 2002's Confessions of a Dangerous Mind about game show impresario and host Chuck Barris. Sam Rockwell's depiction of Barris is dizzy, nonsensical, inept, and something mysteriously wonderful. The script, film, and performance are so good, it made me nostalgic for The Gong Show, almost making it feel like an important lost relic instead of being the foundation and inspiration for the next 40 years of crap television and pseudo-celebrities. God bless you, Charlie Kaufman. It's good to have you back. I do love Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. George Clooney directed Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, actually, mm-hmm. Adam. I, lo- I love that movie, even though I-, I think most people think of it first as either a Rockwell performance or a Kaufman script. Yeah, thank you to everyone who sent us such insightful feedback, as always. And hopefully, Josh, they put us now in the right, if there can be a right state of mind, to talk about the latest from Charlie Kaufman. Jake, my boyfriend. It's snowing. Winter is coming in. We have a real connection. A rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. That's from the trailer for Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which came out exclusively on Netflix this weekend. Kaufman, the writer behind being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and Adaptation. He wrote and directed 2008's Synecdoche, New York, and 2015's Anomalisa. I'm Thinking of Ending Things is his first adaptation since Adaptation. This one is adapted from the 2016 novel of the same name by Canadian author Ian Reid. And Josh, we've joked about it. Why don't we go ahead and jump in? How baffling did you find? I'm thinking of ending things. And ultimately, was it the right kind of baffling? Did it challenge you? Did it provoke you? Is it a movie, maybe unlike Tenet, that you're actually eager to revisit? Yeah, I love that with Tenet's premise, you know, we're kind of, these two reviews are passing each other in other directions. For me, for me in very opposite directions, because while I'm thinking of ending things as baffling and challenging. I enjoyed it quite a bit more. Now, what I'm trying to set aside is that I will say I'm thinking of ending things clicked for me in terms of understanding what I needed to understand before it ended. And so 
I don't want it just to be this case of where, well, I got it, so it's a better mm-hmm. film, because I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's a fair standard to hold up. So let me say this. I think the distinction is not that it clicked for me before it ended, but that when I was baffled, and I was extremely baffled through much of this film, especially once they get to the farmhouse, right? The, the first third maybe is this car ride with Jake, played by Jesse Plemons, and Jesse Buckley, um, who's just identified as the young woman. Once they get to that farmhouse to meet his parents, things go in all sorts of different directions. And for a Mm -hmm. while, I was completely at a loss. But all of those things are exploring themes that Kaufman has always explored. And even if I didn't know the particulars of the plot, exactly what was happening, I knew what those scenes were saying about mortality. I knew what those scenes were saying about malaise. I knew what those scenes were saying about meaninglessness. And these are all things that Kaufman has explored before. And so there was a richness. There was a, a, a thematic heft, to go back to what we talked about with Tenet, in those individual scenes. So that gave me the bearings to bear with, the oddness mm-hmm. and the bizarreness. It gave me the meat to hook into, to think about what might be going on, and it carried me through to the end. And so that I like to think, even if it didn't click for me by the end, and I understood who represented who, and and all those other things we can maybe get into, I would have still appreciated what the movie had been exploring. And I think mm-hmm. that's, why, that's why I'm thinking of ending things worked for me, ultimately. Well, if you got it, then I can't wait to hear. I mean, you mentioned that... It's not a film that necessarily all came together at the very end. And I think that's because it defies any kind of coming together <laughs> whatsoever. It's not it's not really a reveal kind of movie, even though I think that's where our expectations definitely are. And it's not as if there aren't some clues revealed or some new information that's revealed. But for me, it really does just continue to unravel <laughs> everything we maybe thought we knew before. So there are similarities here for sure to Tenet. And one of them, I would say, is that that film, for me, now has the mantle, Tenet does, as the most Nolan. Not necessarily the best, but the most. And this feels to me like the most Kaufman. But I did have a very Hmm. different experience with the two films. And where they are definitely distinct is if Tenet is almost all spectacle, all action, and little to no humanity— I'm thinking of ending things is its antithesis. There's no real action. It plays out on this very confined scale, mostly taking place in a car or inside that farmhouse. And early on in my notes, I did write down the word snow globe because you spend so much time trapped in that car with these Mm -hmm. two characters before they even get there with the snow falling all around them incessantly and really kind of at the same tempo the whole time. I really did wonder if Kaufman was trying to give us the effect of being trapped like these characters. There's places to move. It's not as if there isn't a world around them, but ultimately they are restricted. There's only so far you can go. Well, there's some nice camera work at play here, too, because Kaufman is very judiciously choosing when the camera is inside the car with them, Mm -hmm. where the conversation ranges from being, you know, friendly to stilted to sometimes blatantly cold. And then the camera will also jump outside of the car where it's literally cold, where that snow exists, where the wipers are monotonously going across the windshield. And yeah, so I think that snow globe effect is definitely at play there visually. Yeah. And so there's no real action, but it's all humanity. It's all psychology. It's all, to borrow a term from Kaufman's script, it's all 
interiority, whereas Tenet is mostly concerned, I'd say, with exteriority. And yeah, for me, this one was maybe just as baffling, but it was more challenging in a rewarding way. And I think we can get into some of those rewards, but I do want to talk about what makes it so confounding. Sure. As confusing as, and this is maybe the last time we'll reference it, as Tenet can be, if someone watches it enough and thinks about it enough, I think they can tell you what is happening moment to moment. There might be disagreement between viewers as to certain details of it, all of the mechanics, the ultimate meaning, but there is a movie reality that could be articulated, if that makes sense. And with, I'm thinking of ending things, I could summarize characters and events that occur, but I have no real grasp on what's actually happening, what the movie's reality is. And it's because of that interiority, because it's so enmeshed within the mind of one character yes. and told from her point of view, this young woman who gets multiple names throughout the film is addressed differently by different people played by Jesse Buckley. And it becomes, Josh, something way beyond mere narrator unreliability that I think is being suggested here. You said, especially when they get to the farmhouse, things become particularly unhinged. That's definitely the case. But even before that, in the car, there are these cracks and there are these implications that maybe the actuality of everything we are seeing and hearing is in question. Mm -hmm. It's a discomforting place to be, but really effectively so. Yeah, and I think the reason why I felt more grounded is simply because I was—it goes back to the uh, the Garland principle, really. Like, I felt I was on the far end where I was allowed to embrace the mystery. I understood the basic rules as we are now entering someone's psychology, someone's psyche. Maybe we're not even sure whose. Maybe we have a hint. Maybe we're, we have an idea. But the important thing is we are now inside the mind of someone who is really struggling with basic things, mm -hmm. with mortality, with art. Um, there are so many references here to things like the poems of William Wordsworth or paintings of Ralph Albert Blakelock. And so we understand this is a this is a mind that is appreciative of art, but also wrestling with art, struggling to find the place of where art should be in his or her life. And I guess that was enough for me to hang in there to see where this mm -hmm. was going because the mystery, uh, the mystery, I was allowed to embrace the mystery, I guess. And so it wasn't, I don't want to say it was a reveal for me at the end, click into places maybe too strong. It was a clarification is how, is how I would describe it. And yeah, I'd love to do a little spoiler talk and, and just see if, if you think I'm totally off on, on where <laughs> I think at the end, but we should, you know, we should spend some more time first on some other things here. And I will say if I had a regret about the film, it has to do with this idea of identity. And, and again, we're not going to give anything away. I'm not saying the movie should have been a different movie, but the choices that Kaufman made here did lead to a level of disappointment because when we get something of a shift, let's just say away from the young woman's perspective that we have mm -hmm. in that car ride, where Buckley does an amazing job, not only in just the performance on the screen, but also her voiceover, which is these interior, as you said, philosophical observations she delivers where she's wondering, should I break up with this guy? Should I, you know, should this be it for Jake? And it's a great performance there. We're getting to know her so well. You get a sense she's a person who'd rather talk to herself in her own head than him. Mm -hmm. Then we get to the house and as things start to get more absurd, we learn more about Jake's parents, played by Colette and Thulis. We learn more about Jake's past. And 
that's exactly right for where Kaufman wants to bring the film. But I sort of lamented the loss of the focus on Buckley as a character. And for spoiler reasons, we can't say exactly why that happens. Mm -hmm. I think there are legitimate reasons why it happens. So again, I'm not arguing that that shouldn't have happened, but there's a loss there because Buckley, it's similar to a little bit to what happens to Washington in Tenet, actually. She becomes more passive and her performance gets a little stunted because she's so emotionally and intellectually alert in that opening section. She becomes less of the prickly protagonist and more of the perplexed bystander. And so Mm -hmm. while I appreciate how the movie shifts deeper into Kaufman territory from that point on, I do sort of regret the loss of of her character and her performance, really. Yeah, she definitely becomes more of an observer and then by extension more passive, I think, in that middle sequence. And as I said, we were so enmeshed before, like. There's a symbiotic relationship between us as viewers and her that Kaufman establishes that I think is really uncomfortable at times, but also is what makes this viewing experience so special. And some of the ways he does it are during that car ride where we've always been in the front seat with them or we've been just outside the car watching and listening to them. And then at one point, he just cuts quickly to a shot from the perspective of the driver's side window, the back seat. And Mm -hmm. she turns and looks and she's looking right at us. It's as if we're all of a sudden there in the seat with her. Or when she's reciting this poem, it's an extended poem that she is reciting. And she looks out the corner of that passenger side window and she's looking right at us. She's looking Mm -hmm. right at that camera as if she is talking directly to us. Even at one point, she rolls her eyes at something Jake says, and that eye roll is only for us. Mm -hmm. It is only for a viewer that is there with her and is in her headspace. And that is the key. I mean, it's so obvious to say when you're talking about the guy who wrote being John Malkovich, but I think it's Buckley's character who at one point, I don't remember the exact context, but talks about the world being larger than inside of our own heads. And she says it like it's a statement of fact, but it's more as if she's trying to make herself accept that reality. Mm -hmm. And I think what Kaufman is saying in this film is that no, (laughs) it never really is. It should be, but it never really is. You never can truly escape your own head, escape your own thoughts, your own doubts about all aspects of yourself as an individual, about your place in the world. Certainly it's never possible, I think Kaufman would say, And I think this movie supports it. But again, maybe more for spoiler talk. It's the case for someone who is an artist, an artist, a writer can never truly escape it. And the way we see this manifested includes her interior monologue constantly being interrupted right on cue by him Mm -hmm. and him being able to almost anticipate what she's thinking. And she's on a roll with these thoughts. And it's as if real life just keeps intruding on everything that she is thinking. And there's a line in this movie. I don't know if it's in the original Josh or not, but it really did stun me for a second. It still stuns me when I think about it. It's one of Buckley's lines. And she says that humans are the only animals who think about the inevitability of their own death. Mm -hmm. Other animals live in the present. Humans cannot. So they invented hope. I mean, (laughs) That really is the human condition that I've never heard expressed that way before. I would say it's the Kaufman condition. It it definitely (laughs) is. But but to generalize a little bit or maybe to expose my own neuroses, 
We are always aware of our own mortality. And as such, that prevents us from truly ever living in the present. But it also keeps us from accepting reality. Because how do you exist day to day if you're always thinking about that inevitability of death? You have to manifest hope in some way. You have to expect or create the expectation of something good happening. And it seemed to me... At least what really struck me or resonated with me about this film was Kaufman exploring that central idea here. Well, and I think as in terms of Kaufman's own psyche, as it's shown in his art, this is really one of one of the more depressing works, maybe even more so than Synecdoche. I even think of something like Anomalisa, which was a meditation on misery as well, but in its very artistry, this stop motion artifact that was so beautifully, carefully created, it sort of spoke against itself in its own beauty, right? Mm -hmm. Here, I'm thinking of ending things, you know, it's, it's a, arresting as well. We've talked about some of the formal elements that are that are so impressive, but not on the same level for me as Anomalisa. And really the conclusion it comes to for me, and again, we'll have to get into this more in spoilers, is that art does not offer any consolation, particularly, as you suggested, for the artist, mm-hmm. uh, or at least for the insecure seems too weak of a word, but um, I guess the insecure artist, which is ultimately what, that's ultimately the psyche we're in here. It it was sort of my takeaway Mm -hmm. from the film. And um, again, can explore that a little bit more in in spoilers. But before we get to that, let me ask you, you had to love the debate they have in the car over the relative value of Cassavetti's woman under the influence, right? (laughs) Now, did you you recognize the critic whose negative review she was quoting? Because Kaufman gives us a clue, a visual clue. I did. I did. As soon as she changed her voice. Yes. And I actually fairly recently decided to watch a documentary about Pauline Kael. It came out a few years ago, but I watched it just in the past maybe three months. So maybe I had her voice in my head a little bit. And Buckley is doing a type of impression of Pauline Kael. But I knew it because of the rhythm of the delivery. It became clear that she was here again reciting something and that Kaufman had given us the clue earlier in the film Mm -hmm. on jesse plemons bookshelf back at home or in his like art space i think it is where you see some of those paintings you see books and you see a pauline kale collection front and center so that did trigger in my mind that she was quoting from that review it's the most transient big performance i've ever seen i guess i'm unclear what you mean by transient mabel tries to slash her wrist Nick puts a band-aid on the cut. The idiot symbolism is enough to make you want to hoot, but this two-hour and 35-minute movie leaves you too groggy to do more than moan. Details that are meant to establish the pathological nature of the character surrounding Mabel and, 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 and so show her isolation become instead limp, false moments. It's unclear whether the characters are unconscious or whether it's Cassavetes who's unconscious of what he's doing. The children keep murmuring that they love her. And of course, there's something just fun about that sequence, including the way Buckley plays it and so easily mimics that voice. But for me, it fits so well with the rest of the film and that it is all about that interiority. It is all about the subjective nature of all things, of all experiences, but especially, of course, of art. And you've got in the driver's seat. I mean, we've all had that type of conversation with someone else. After you leave a movie, we have it here on the show. I was just going to say, I think we had that woman under the influence debate ourselves. That's it, right? (laughs) So you've got someone who says, 
well, I just think that's a great performance. And this really meant something to me. And I thought that was powerful. And then you've got someone just really rationally and surgically completely deconstructing it and tearing it apart. And you leave the other person to say nothing but, oh, well, I didn't feel that way. Right. So I love that sequence. All right. So you want to do some spoilers? I mean, I'm hoping this will provide some clarification for me. I'm definitely not going to provide it to you, but let's do it. We're going to stop the review proper of I'm thinking of ending things. If you haven't seen it yet, please do not listen past this point. Josh, what do you got? All right, so tell me if I'm crazy, but we have these scenes on occasion of this older janitor, right, played by Guy Boyd. The movie will just cut away to him, pretty much, and he's he's tending his tasks at a high school. He pauses here and there to watch students rehearse for a production of Oklahoma, and, you know, there are clues here and there in retrospect. You know, it, it does seem to make sense because Jesse brings up Oklahoma, and my my feeling is just that, again, it's just more of a clarification. It's not really a reveal, but this whole film has to be the last moments, the memory and the last moments of that janitor. So essentially, Jake is the janitor. And and I remember mm-hmm. seeing, you know, very early on when Jake comes to pick Jesse up, there is a shot of someone. She's like on looking a main the street, someone yep. above them looking out the mm-hmm. window. And we never see exactly who. So we don't even get a chance to pair it with the janitor. But later on, I'm thinking it had to be him. And it's, again, the omniscient narrator, right? He's he's above them. He's He's constructing the scene. So again, it's not that when I realized that the movie necessarily was better, but that it really clarified for me something incredibly depressing for me, if this is coming from Kaufman as well, is that here is an aspiring artist, Jake, this young man who wanted to be a painter. We see the things he painted. He wanted to be a poet as well. We get a sense and just never really got a chance to do that Mm -hmm. and ended up being this janitor at his former high school where the kids looked down on him. And that's kind of where his life went. And what's depressing to me about that is here was someone who deeply appreciated art. He's very thoughtful about art. That was not enough. It was almost as if he needed to be a creator to feel fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And if Kaufman, someone who's Won an Oscar, right? He, I think he's won an Oscar for, for one of his screenplays. I'm pretty sure we can look that up as we're talking here. But if this is where someone like Charlie Kaufman is at, you know, with his stature, uh, yeah, he did win one Oscar for the script to Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind. If this is where he's at with art, you know, that the great art from before is no consolation. My own artistic accomplishments recognized by the larger art world is no consolation and essentially leaves us with a suicidal janitor in the final Mm -hmm. scenes. Oh, I mean, this thing is a lot to bear. And no, I would not want to watch it again for that reason, not for for any confusion, but just for to have that to mm -hmm. sit with that psyche again does not sound fun. No, it's definitely not appealing or immediately pleasurable, but I see the movie similarly to you, and I hate to be, I suppose, somewhat literal about a film that otherwise is so fanciful and abstract and weird, but at some point, well before we get to the end, well before we fully meet that janitor, and I think well before we even make the connection 
that the janitor and Jake are the same person, it occurred to me that the I'm thinking of ending things is not at all really, of course, about ending things in a relationship. Sure. The relationship is the metaphor for ending your life. Mm -hmm. This is really a movie about someone who is at that point where they see utter futility in continuing, see themselves as a failure, can't truly engage with the world in a sensible, sensical way, in a meaningful way. And at that point, if you have that thought, there is a line I love. And my understanding is it's mentioned a couple of times at the beginning of the book. The line, once you get the thought in your head, it's hard to let it go. It's some variation of that. Yeah, it's once at the very beginning, in, very beginning yeah. of the film. And of course, that seems true. Like if you're in a relationship and then you break up, and especially if you're the one who obviously does the breaking up, at some point, that idea occurs to you for the first time. And once that occurs to you, once you are entertaining the notion that this relationship could end, isn't it in some ways doomed from there on, right? And I think that's what's being suggested here with this notion of taking your own life, too. That once that creeps in, how do you let it go? Once you've accepted that that's a possible fate and that you're capable of that, how do you fully reckon with that? And the way we see this character reckon with it is by, I suppose, how I see it, retracing or recreating his life through a series of encounters and circumstances that didn't really happen but they are like the roads he didn't travel yes and he's yes. he's trying to envision what if they were what if so, they were traversed and he sees this play out as if maybe this girl that i didn't talk to at trivia night at the bar what if i actually had yes what would that relationship look like where would that relationship go and that's what brings me back to how i was saying of course we're not even talking about an unreliable narrator here we're talking about an unreal narrator you're so tied to her psychology and her perspective and point of view and then come to find out she's not she's not she's real a she's within a the construct of the movie even right. she's a projection completely an artistic one of the artist's mind but you're right it doesn't solve anything for him well and she's no it doesn't and she's a melding of you know perhaps this woman he met at trivia night but also the teenager at the ice cream place right yeah they're kind of the same that's maybe a girl he knew in high school who, you know, maybe he didn't talk to her, maybe he feels like he should have, but he's replaying all of this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also clarifying is that fairly extensive and impressive production number, dance sequence that really takes good. place um, when they do drive to the high school. And what happens there? You know, it's it's the fantasy of what could have been between them, except who breaks them up? A younger variation of the janitor. So it's mm -hmm. it, there's the self-incrimination going on in that sequence as well that that's so you know thoroughly ruining as a viewer because it's it's not like an outside force is coming to prevent him from becoming what he wanted to it's it's right. it, he's blaming himself for how mm -hmm. his life turned out and yeah so it's it, it's pretty devastating it really is and i can't add anything that makes it any more hopeful or less depressing but that is to some extent, what we have come to expect from Charlie Kaufman and all of his films have always had a meta element to them. They've always in some way been commenting on the process of creation. And 
as you touched on, Josh, these different women or girls from his past, isn't that what, on some level, every artist does, or at least every artist that does mine their own experience? The characters in their in their book, the characters in their script are these amalgams of all of their past encounters, different people who have made an impression, certainly past regrets. And it's as if somehow he has truly in this film opened his skull and he's somehow just just put everything that's inside his head as an artist that that can't truly be articulated in any logical or any rational way. And he's put it on the screen for us to somehow inhabit, <laughs> for us to truly feel what that is like. It's almost as if we're getting to see via Charlie Kaufman what it must have been like or what it was suggested it was like for John Cusack when he enters the portal mm. and he's inside Malkovich's head. I feel like in its own way, that's what this movie is trying to do. Well, I guess you just hope that as depressing of an experience, even as we appreciate it as it is, it's a cathartic one for Kaufman himself. I guess that's hopefully that's maybe the, the silver lining you could maybe put on this. Absolutely. I'm thinking of ending things is out exclusively on Netflix. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. And Josh, we're going to end there because even if we had more to talk about, I don't think we're capable of it. No, I'm, I'm good with ending right there. I'm spent. If you do want more, though, you can head to the show archives at filmspotting.net. That's where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And that's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking, what is your favorite film of the last decade that's longer than three hours? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. New this weekend in limited release and available VOD feels good, man. Definitely recommend that new documentary. And on Disney Plus, you can see Mulan. Next week here on the show... We'll get back to our 8 from 84 series with a discussion of Once Upon a Time in America, and we'll share our top five Ennio Morricone scores. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Dead, that's D-E-H-D, comes from the album Flower of Devotion. More information is at deadforever.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.